0: to the Squiggly Podcast, I'm Steve Henderson, and I am joined as ever by Ben. Hello Ben. Hello
1: Steve. How are you feeling today?
0: I'm feeling on top of the world. How are you my friend? I'm
1: effervescent with anticipation.
0: Wonderful. As, uh, if I knew what that word meant, then uh, I'm sure I'd be too.
1: Basically means uh, my blood has gone all fizzy. It's mainly probably to do with the, the horrible things I put in my body. But I'm just so darn excited. We're going to be heading to Annecy soon, and I'm very excited about our upcoming trip, Steve. As you know, it's it's my first time. I'm all a quiver. Going to be good. <laughs> it is. I've not been yeah. to France in a while. What's the skiing like over there? The
0: skiing in June.
1: Yeah, I'm assuming it's a very mountainous region of France, Annecy. I haven't done much research, but uh,
0: well, don't don't bring your skis. It might be a bit of a waste of time. Ah, oh, f- you've not already paid extra baggage, have you?
1: I thought the whole point of this was that it was like the squiggly skiing holiday. So what's going on in Annecy then? Uh, if there isn't any skiing?
0: We spend most of the time inside, in cinemas, in in cold, dark rooms.
1: To what end? To watch films. What kind of films?
0: Animated films. We
1: do that here! This way we
0: can do it and get overcharged for a baguette in a foreign language.
1: Well, okay, you sold me. <laughs> uh, I've been talking to some some people who've... Been to Annecy in the past and are going this year, and it's it's getting me all, uh, uh, you know what's it, what's that thing that people have, um, emotions. I'm getting some of those. I'm I'm, I'm yeah. getting you know looking forward to it. Sort of long overdue. I think I voiced in the past my my previous criteria for going to Annecy in days gone by was I'll I'll go one day when I get a film in, and that could take decades if it ever happens at all. In the meantime, I have to be content with what else is going on in the world of animation, the stuff that's happened already, the stuff that's happening right now. Steve, what's happening right now? Right now? Hop to it. You're my news source. (laughs) Uh,
0: Okay, so since we were last in people's ears, there's been a a big, what old people would call hoo-ha, all about uh, Pixar Princess princess merida has caused quite a storm uh, princess who by getting a, a merida 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 which yeah. one is it merida i
1: haven't seen the film i don't know how they pronounce her name
0: well this they pronounce it in a scottish accent and i can't do scottish accents it's merida
1: okay merida, merida.
0: say it with me merida 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 Married. The ginger one. The ginger princess.
1: They're all From. ginger in that film.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so basically... This, ladies um,
1: and gentlemen, is called padding content. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> There's been an outcry against the new design, I guess, that she she doesn't quite look as, um, I don't know, real life-ish. They've kind of idealized her. Is that, uh, is that the the stink...
0: According to one side of the argument, they've made her a lot thinner. They've uh, they've changed her sort of her hair to make it a lot more sort of like a like some kind of you know L'Oreal advert. You know, they've, oh, so they,
1: they've, they've spruced her up a bit.
0: They've given her a makeover. Uh-huh. Yeah, because she's been initiated into uh, as a Disney princess as part of Walt Disney World's kind of official Disney princesses. Did you see the video online of her initiation?
1: Is that a rhetorical question? I...
0: That's a question that I would like
1: an answer to. Did you see it? Of course I didn't see the video of it. <laughs> (laughs) Disney princess being inducted.
0: Oh well, this is well. This is the this is the thing. It's such a it's such a mad thing. What I'm not saying. Did you see it because you were looking forward to it, Ben? I'm not (laughs) saying that anyone would. have I mean, out of pure curiosity, how would I have even heard of it as a thing that? How have you heard of it? Have you
1: have you got a thing called the internet? Have you actually? Yes, I have a little thing called the internet, and like everyone who has the internet, I use it for the important things like corn, and videos of Boston terrier puppies bouncing on trampolines. Because they're adorable.
0: Well, something for everyone.
1: <laughs> I just didn't realize they did that. They they made the, uh, they went through the ceremony
0: of it. Well, yeah, this is this is what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about, like, did you see it? It was amazing. I'm seeing it. Did you see it? It was bloody weird.
1: Okay, okay, good. Yeah,
0: the idea that, you know, to have this sort of weird coronation, it's almost like like, very culty. Well, what, you know?
1: how, who do they have do it? Do they get someone to dress up as her? Do they have the actress who plays her?
0: No, they just had the woman that wanders around the park and, you know, gets a picture taken with kids uh-huh. going on this sort of procession and and then announcing that she was a princess. And then her mum turned up and, uh, you know, it was...
1: You sure know, that's not just a crazy woman they found wandering the park?
0: It could well have been, yeah. Uh, you know, but the rest of the... Choreography would have been an amazing coincidence if that was the case.
1: From my memory, the, the character has kind of crazy homeless person hair. Yeah. Yeah. But so, in an
0: old part of the new merchandise, it's the very opposite of homeless person hair.
1: I see. Uh, I'm having a look at the, the concept art that uh, caused the hullabaloo, if you'll pardon my language. It doesn't look like crazy different. They've kind of like, they've given her like some slap. Like they've given her eyeliner, which is a bit weird.
0: The whole storyline of Brave isn't isn't a princess story. It's a, it's like Freaky Friday. It's a, you know, it's a it's a California girl story, isn't it? It's not a. It, lots of people are getting upset about about the the makeover and the way that she had been turned into this this princess and how she stands for an awful lot of you know Scottish sort of girl and everything. <laughs> I don't quite know what the argument is, but she's never been that. She's never been that kind of Celtic princess. But
1: she is a a princess in the film. It's not that she's just yeah, she's female a female. She's lead. a
0: princess in the film. Yeah, and they've just basically just doled her up a bit. She
1: doesn't look like that much more glamorous, she just looks older.
0: Yeah.
1: Like she looks like a, a sort of early teenager in the film. And then in in the in the drawing she looks sort of like, you know, she's in her late twenties. Yeah. Like she's a little chestier maybe. Actually well, she's uh, got more of a caboose in the in the new version. I'm just saying. Fair enough. The the human eye goes where it goes, Steve. What do you want from <laughs> me? Don't look at me like that.
0: <laughs> but yeah, the, the, and the obviously the rage as well has been concentrated on her dress as well. You know, she's been putting a golden, a pretty golden dress. But you know, they're not going to sell many dolls if she's in a scruffy sack, is it? You know. Either. Well, I
1: I get the idea of I do agree with people having an opposition to to the character being redesigned in such a way. In theory, I do think it's important for you know, young women, especially now with everything, all the nonsense going on, I think it's important for young women to have a good self-image. So to have an atypical looking like lead in a, in a Pixar movie, it's a positive thing. It's like those, you know, those, uh, those dove campaigns with you know, women with different body types rather than just you know, the one body type you see in every other cosmetic commercial stuff like that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think that's much healthier. So yeah, if they were going to completely like, you know, glamour up and sex her up and and make her sort of, you know, impossible in terms of I mean, you if you're a cartoon character, automatically you have an impossible to attain figure just for, you know, the 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 physicality of, of whatever design style they've chosen. So I'm mm. looking at these two side by side and it doesn't seem to me that they've taken it in such a negative direction It just kind of seems like they've been like, okay, how do we modify this to conform to a product line? And I'm not exactly. sure if that's the area to be furiously indignant about uh, I don't know what you'd call it like the politics of, of Sexualizing Female role models. Yeah, I, I, I'm certainly not looking at this going. Oh god. She's so sexy now <laughs> It looks like a cartoon still, you know. Exactly. Get a hold of yourselves.
0: The, uh, the argument is that there, there was apparently this, this kind of feisty, independent character, and now Disney have put her in a dress and put some makeup on her and made her a little bit more like their other princesses. Mm. And so there's this fury that this kind of independent character has been sort of brought down to a, a level that that people believed that she she was not. I mean, but the, the kind of fury that surrounded it, it was as if Ripley from Alien had been put in a gingham dress for the Alien merchandising. You know, she's not a very feisty... She, she's feisty and independent in the film, but she's... Uh, at heart she's still a princess and disney sell princess things she wanted you know disney wanted her as part of the princess line and there you go that's what you get i'm sure there's 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 mothers and 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 fathers out there that are are against the idea of their children playing with dolls but you know if you don't like it you don't have to subject your kids to it do you
1: it's not the disney merchandise machines role to educate your child or to to Supply your child with templates of, of how to live their life. Exactly. You know, it's, it's it's down to you to control what merchandise they're exposed to. Everyone's passing the buck. Everyone's lazy except us, Steve. You're in many ways we're national heroes. Yeah. So is the have they are they now not releasing this toy?
0: Once the the storm had died down and the pictures were removed, then uh, a doll was released, which.
1: So does this look like the character in the film more than the concept art?
0: This looks absolutely nothing like the character in the film. Uh, I'm sure you can can see it there. It's kind of... I think I've got it. This is what I would have imagined people to have been getting furious about.
1: That sucks. (laughs) Yeah. That looks nothing like like at least the other one, at least yeah. the drawing looked vaguely like it was meant to be.
0: The drawings that everyone everyone got really upset about, they could have belonged in like one of the art books. You know, it could have been a version of of Merida, like a kind of uh, a pre production drawing, maybe. But this sort of doll looks absolutely nothing like. Uh, this doll stinks.
1: <laughs> it looks like like a knockoff. It looks like the hair is completely wrong it's just like they put a red wig on a doll.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, it, is it part of like a series of like other dolls that all look exactly the same and they just kind of like adapt features like those like vinyl collector toys you can get?
0: Exactly. I mean, if you're on the same article as me, you just scroll down. You'll see the rest of the, you'll see the rest of the characters down at the bottom part of targets, ultimate Disney princess collection.
1: They're very, very generic. Like, yeah. Yeah. They're not even idealizing. It's just it's it's just bad craftsmanship.
0: Were you into the Power Rangers as a kid?
1: Is that a rhetorical question?
0: No, it's a question. <laughs> Were you into? Did you enjoy the Power Rangers as a kid?
1: No, I was already too old by the time it came out. I was still a You're too old. I was now, still a kid, but it was it was kiddie. What?
0: Well, I was the perfect age for it then, and I'm like a year younger than you. When the when the Power Rangers came out, there were uh, the the toys which were like fifteen pounds each mm-hmm. for the exact uh, Power Ranger toys that looked exactly like the Power Rangers. Or you could go to ASDA and spend three pounds on like a cheap knockoff toy. That's what these dolls look like. So imagine the Disney princesses in a kind of cheap knockoff fashion. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of the, the, the kind of look that you get. Into. Maybe
1: so it's it's buying disney toys on a budget
0: yeah 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 but if these are officially merchandise i doubt there'll be much of a budget for it
1: the power rangers went from 1993 until the end of 2001 so what period within that were you watching it steve be honest
0: so i would have been nine
1: and so you watched it from the very beginning
0: from the very beginning yeah. how
1: old were you in 2001
0: 2001 i was 17
1: so how long did you stick with it
0: uh, I'm still with them now, Ben. Okay. Still no. enjoy the reruns. <laughs> I happened.
1: admire your loyalty, I'm going to tell you.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I think it got a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to go into the Power Rangers, for God's sake.
1: <laughs> what, did it, did it jump the shark, Steve?
0: <laughs> it jumped the shark at ah. one point. Just right At after, one point, okay. Right after the movie. I just couldn't uh-huh. keep up with the bad guys.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear Lord. Power Rangers oh
0: I'm so tired
1: (laughs) so what have we concluded that um,
0: we've not concluded anything Disney
1: need to really pull their weight with uh, making their dolls sexier because there's nothing worse than being a young kid with an ugly doll
0: yeah
1: moving along (laughs) you hear they're making films with atoms yeah that was a rhetorical question because I heard that I think from you
0: yeah well all films are made out of atoms, Ben.
1: Don't be a smart ass. <laughs> <laughs> Would you care to be more specific? That just blew my mind. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, I saw that film. What did you think of it?
0: I enjoyed it for I mean for its achievement, you know. It was a it was it was a nice example, wasn't it, of uh, of, of their use the technology. Uh And I think it's kind of a a nice testament, really, to animation, you know, to the the beauty of animation as, as, you know, you could only achieve, you know, okay, so you you can move an atom. How do you demonstrate this? You know, you can either show a film of the moving atoms, which would be quite boring, or you could put together an animation, which would be slightly tongue-in-cheek, but still fun and still demonstrate what it is you're actually doing. You know, so I think it's a nice testament to animation that... uh, this, this achievement came around.
1: Testament, schmestament. the in-betweening was dreadful. <laughs> Frankly, I think they needed to pull their finger out.
0: Yeah, well, you know, these are, these are only atomic scientists, Ben. They're, they're nowhere near as clever as animators.
1: <laughs> I mean, you're dealing with a stick figure, for Christ's sakes. Yeah. I mean, how about some settle? How about some squash and stretch?
0: Yeah, the, there was no anticipation. There was no, you know, follow through. There was, there was, there was none of it.
1: I didn't believe any of the emotion between the boy and his atom. Yeah, who was it? Was it IBM? IBM, yeah, IBM Research. What, what What are they meant to be researching when they're not making <laughs> what, I'll, what I'll admit are quite impressive little uh, cartoony ventures?
0: Uh, well, I believe the idea of moving atoms around is just so they can try and make the smallest microchip, I suppose, in the world. There's a thing called Moore's Law, which is that um, microchips get smaller and faster every year. I'm sure you've heard it, uh, or at least you'll have seen pictures of how much how much you can store, you know, how much five megabytes would have been stored in the fifties. And it's like a huge room full of computers or something being loaded onto the back of an airplane. And so the idea is that every year things are getting smaller and smaller and faster and faster. So this is the this is kind of them stopping Moore's Law by sort of beating it to the punchline. So there you go. There It was boring, wasn't
1: it? I think it was enlightening, and I think you've added a sort of infotainment edge to our podcast, which was already good to begin with. Oh, thank you very much. Do you remember that uh, Nokia film, Dot? And that was meant to be the smallest film? Yeah. They must have been so pissed off. <laughs> 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 yeah, I
0: suppose so. <laughs> so, on the last podcast, uh, we spoke to Mr. Brian Cosgrove. The man who doesn't need any introduction, but we're going to give him one anyway. He's the guy who created uh, Danger Mouse, uh, Ducula, with his co-founder of Cosgrove Halls, Mr. Mark Hall. And uh, in the last podcast, fascinating conversation, where he went all the way from the beginning of his animation career, right the way through to his working relationship with uh, David Jason, who you will know as the voice of uh, Danger Mouse, um, Toad in Wind in the Willows as well as the BFG if you listen out in this one he basically talks himself <laughs> through my through my excellent questioning Ben <laughs> uh, into setting up a stop motion workshop uh, in the new Cosgrove Hall Fitzpatrick
1: we should implement this more we should start convincing people via interview to give us jobs
0: well, I feel like I could be so persuasive with people on the phone such as I don't know the tax man or
1: <laughs> well I'm intrigued so let's hear more this is Brian Cosgrove on the Squiggly Podcast part 2.
0: Back in 2009 when the when the the actual studio closed its doors, we were talking to Barry Purvis. He was the second guest we had on this podcast. And um, he said that they were knocking the the, the building down and turning it into an old folks home. And he said he said that he would like the rooms to be named Toad Hall, Cockleshell Bay, I don't know, Lavender Castle. You can name you can name any room as a sort of as a le- as a legacy to uh, Cosgrove Hall, but in a hundred years' time, we'll call it the first era, the first era of Cosgrove Hall, how would you like that to be remembered, do you think?
2: Well that's a tricky one, I've never been asked that before. I suppose that it's happening now that the shows that we did, uh, people remember. Um, Danger Mouse is remembered, is remembered, you remember mm. Um the, the shows that we did people do remember and they remember them with affection you know the people that that are grown up now remember those childhood programs and it i think it keeps in people's minds that the shows we produced had quality um, <clears throat> we were learning our craft as we, we were never a studio that had uh, animators in depth, like, say, a Disney studio did. There was never the funding for that. But the shows that we produced, even the simplistic ones like Jamie and the Magic Torch and Chaw, were good stories. They entertained, and people remember them with affection. Now, that's, that's not a bad legacy. In the new company that we've got, It gives us the opportunity to build on the old Cosgrove Hall. We learned our craft there. We carry all that knowledge with us, our attitude about what programming should be like, what scripts should be like, what their quality should be, the acting performances that you want. We carry all that with us. And therefore the new shows that we are planning uh, that will hit the screens in the future we hope that they will be as entertaining as the old shows were. Mm -hmm. I think they will be different. I can't really see us having a model department again. Um, uh, You know, a solid, solid models that you animate by hand. I think the most, more likely to be CGI animated three-dimensional figures. I think it's more likely to go that way, I think.
0: I mean, would you like to see, would you like another
2: stop motion? I would like to see another model department set up. Yes, I would. I think mainly because there are people like Peter and Ian and their people still around, and -hmm. the talent they've developed, the quality they've developed, has got subtler and subtler. When we started, that was all really quite naive. Now, the, the models that were turned out, the way we animated them was all quite naive. We reached the stage, you know, where the guys, the animators, could make a puppet doll, but make you almost want to cry because they were making these figures act in such a subtle way. Now, that, that seemed a shame to not try to work towards a situation where that talent can continue developing. And I think what's why I said uh, CGI was because that's sort of come in uh, since we were doing our model shows and in a way it's almost taken over really. Mm. Um, I I don't know I don't know I'm I'm in the, it, it gives me a quandary really I would like us to have another model a series of model studios I would um, I, I'll have to see what what the future brings um, but it's certainly tempting it's certainly tempting to have another because I know those people are still out there and, and I saw people come from art school who are model animators. Well, they weren't model animators when they started. But when they, they got on a set with a model there to animate, they, their talent developed in such a subtle way that I know that it, it would be possible to find other people who can follow the same path. I mean, the development people are doing it, aren't they? they? They have model animators who are producing mm-hmm. subtle acting. Um, So, yes, it's a tempting thing. It really is quite tempting.
0: (laughs) It sounds it. Sorry. (laughs) Um, I
2: did rub it on a bit there, didn't I? Sorry about that. No, 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 not at all. (laughs) And automatically my my reaction was it'll move more CGI. But as I was talking, more and more I started thinking, why should it, why should it, you know? Why shouldn't there be room for the three-dimensional figures? Three dimensional sets, why not? Uh, because we did it before and raised the standard quite high. Why shouldn't
0: we do it again? Indeed, <laughs> uh, so so you're very much back. I mean, but has television changed, or, or do the same rules for good television, children's television, still apply now uh, to when you were creating uh, television for the kids of the same age in the well, 70s and 80s? You know, the, the,
2: the biggest change, of course, is, is funding
0: um,
2: mm. that's been the problem because. We were in a new, unique position with Thames Television. As I said, the funding was constantly there, allowed us to build an industry. Really, now money's got tighter and tighter. Satellite so, television came in, and the available advertising revenue that ITV had got cornered has now spread over so many different channels that there isn't that amount of income coming into television anymore. So uh, they're having to watch the pennies more and more. That's the biggest change, really. Mm-hmm. As far as the shows themselves and the entertainment, the actual content of the shows, I think as the years have gone by, the filmmakers, their attitudes have changed about what is entertaining. We did, during the Cosmo for all years, or say when, we, when we started, the stuff that was being produced by Animators, mainly for the BBC, was really quite gentle stuff. There wasn't any attempt to, to, if you like, humour. I think the stuff that we did was influenced by what the Americans were doing, what Warner Brothers was doing mainly, the sort of humour that that they produced, filtered into our material. I think there'd be a lot of filmmakers out there who would have soaked that up and realised that children's programming can be humorous. You know? I have great confidence in the amount of ability that there is in this country, in this field. There are an awful lot of people who are, I was going to say desperate, to get into the making of films. But desperate is probably the wrong word. What I mean is that if, if the studios are there, English artists have an innate talent for what they get in those studios to developing their talent Mm-hmm. and producing entertainment material that is groundbreaking, shall we say. Yeah. I have a, a, an innate belief that that does exist in this country. There aren't enough companies like the one we're hoping to establish. But because this country isn't it's not a wealthy country anymore, is it? Mm. Um, when you are a wealthy country like, like the States is, they can set up studios like Pixar and so on because the Americans have control of the cinemas, don't they? You know, they, they, from the cinemas come enormous amounts of money which they can feed back into companies like Pixar. And uh, we don't have that in this country. All our animation studios are really quite small. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to send, sell our shows all around the world It's tougher. It's tougher. Well, you know, one lives in hope.
0: <laughs> <laughs> ask me another question. Uh, well, I'll ask you the question, the unfair question. Early on in the year, CITV showed uh, a Danger Mouse, and it got incredible uh, ratings, the, the highest ratings that it's ever had. And recently, uh, rumour has emerged, another one, uh, that the Danger Mouse series might be looked into by Fremantle Media Um, can you let us know once and for all if it it will be making a welcome return or is it back to the DVDs for the legions of loyal followers? Well,
2: I can't say that, of course, because I I don't own the rights to Daniel Mouse. Fremantle owned the rights. Thames Television held the rights to all the the library of material that we produced during those years. They have now gone down to Fremantle uh, Media and they are in the position to exploit all the shows that we did during those years. So they have the rights to Danger Mouse. If they decide to make more Danger Mouse shows, I don't have uh, access to their thinking. I don't know whether they are doing it or not. Certainly when you get pieces like that, it was in broadcast, wasn't it, that piece? I saw it saying that Danger Mouse had got uh, a very high audience rating. Mm-hmm. Whether that influences them to want to make more shows, I don't know. But they would have to face up to the fact that those shows would be quite costly. And they have to weigh up whether those shows would bring the return of the money they put into it. I, I, I don't know. When you start off on this road, you are chancing <coughs> you are. Chancing your arm. We are with our new company. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we have <coughs> investors to put Money into our shows what they are trusting what they are believing is that our shows will earn their money back that they put in plus give them quite a healthy profit down the years now we have great belief in that because we're going to see that not only will we make film sales but we will exploit the shows in merchandising and we know that uh, the marketplace tells us that children's programs earn an enormous amount of money in merchandising. Pepper Pig earns billions. <laughs> it sounds ridiculous, but it does. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the merchandising sales of Peppa Pig is an enormously lucrative thing. The writing is there for investors to read and to see whether Fremantle believe that by putting their money into more danger-muff shows, they will get that Hmm. and I, I'm not a party to their
0: thinking. I would like to think that it would have at least have your blessing for a man who was so involved in it. No, it, it
2: doesn't have to have my blessing. It, it is up to them. I think the tricky thing, for something, they have to be sure that it hasn't already been done because, as I say, we did over 100 episodes, there's 100 episodes
0: I said it was unfair. I'm sorry.
2: I'm not sure it's unfair. I mean, I have a view on it,
0: but
2: Hmm. it's outside my remit, isn't it? (laughs)
0: Sure, sure. And a shame it is too. Can you tell us a little bit more about what's in the uh, the pipeline for for CHF? I mean, we've seen little snips of PIP.
2: We've got one show on the stocks at the moment that is getting close to being actually started, and that's a show called PIP. Mm -hmm. We're gathering the funding together on that. We're starting like we did in Cosgrove Hall 1, We're starting with shows for young children and Peppies for um, youngsters, you know. We expect that the returns on that in merchandising will be higher. Um, And we're quite hopeful with that. We like the shows that are happening. We like the scripts. We like the characters. So that's the first one. We've got two or three other shows that are coming along. We've got one called Hieroglyphics that is in in design, and that is about a group of dogs who, five of them I think, who are all like super dogs, who uh, have adventures, slightly older audience. Um, Mm -hmm. We've got a lot of hope in that, a lot of belief in that. We've got about one, two, three, four of the shows in pre-production, in pre-thinking, planning, if you like, that I don't want to talk about because you don't like revealing your ideas too soon in case somebody else says, Well, oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> 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 they not do another version of it. <laughs> <laughs> we've got four other shows that we're quite uh, positive about, that we like. So we've got a um, We've got a production line traveling off into the future.
0: <laughs> yes, <laughs>
2: which is which is rather nice.
0: It sounds it. It sounds uh, it sounds like exciting times again. You know, after coming back it, from it retirement, is really,
2: it is exciting times. It's it's a new one for us. As I said, when when we worked in the old Cosgrove form, we were working for a big company, and we were like employed people. This is slightly different. It's our own company. We guide its future with investment from people who believe in us. So it, it has a different set of responsibilities. But it's exciting. Yeah, it is. It's great fun. I'm really enjoying
0: myself. <laughs> <laughs> good, good, good. From the whole history of um, Cosgrove Hall... Uh, past, present and future. I mean, w- what's been your, your highlight? Which production, which, which era has been your highlight?
2: Oh, it, 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 Danger Mouse has got people. It, it was at the time when we were still learning our craft, really. When the animators were still learning how to animate properly and it was, when you first come out of art, art school and you're doing the first things, you, you tend to fly by your seat if you pass a bit. If, if you can't animate something, you Back on ingenuity, and that's the sort of thing you used to do as uh, in art school when you're an art student. You, you use your ingenuity more, and uh, as, you, as time goes on, and you get a solid group of drawn animators, it becomes more. I've got to say the word predictable, but what I mean is you you plan for them doing it rather than having to use your your brain more. We did a a series of shorts for the Kenny Everett show when he was alive. And
3: he was a devil for always delivering his soundtrack late. Mm. But the deadline for his show never moved. So we had to
2: use our ingenuity an awful lot producing stuff for Kenny Everett's Show there was one that I have used. I've used this example quite often because it's the one that most springs to mind. But it's it's typical of the sort of thing I'm talking about. He he left us virtually no time at all on one piece of film. We would we would do some drawn animating of Captain Krenn the character and the other characters, mm-hmm. but he would give he yeah. gave us uh, the problem of producing an alien. And we just didn't have time to draw an alien. So what the director did was he got a frying pan and he cracked an egg in it. Now that's the sort of ingenuity I'm talking about that art students would employ. So those early years when we were doing Dangerous, we had to do things like that. Not, not fried eggs in pans. <laughs> but we had to find ways of turning in animation when we didn't have time to settle down and do it. The traditional way. So those were the early years were good. Then the one that I always remember affection was the BFG, Mm. which was our first, uh, which was a feature-length show, and I was able to gather together a fairly big crew for us, and we had six months of pre-planning where we designed everything, and that was like going back to our school days. Uh, I remember I had a porter cabin in the back car park where I've got about five or six guys working away designing what the world looked like and how we would design things. You know, the plants in giant land and so on. He, and that was an exciting time. Those are the two things that stick in my mind: Danger Mouse and the BFG.
0: I do and have. I think
2: uh... if Mark was here, he would probably say the Wind in the Willows.
0: Really. I do, uh, I do have fond memories of the BFG as a kid as well. That's uh, that's another another good one. But uh, also, it's a, it's a feature. I mean, um, different production methods there. I mean, did you have a, a preference? Series, features?
2: It, it, it was. It was a, a whole new ball game. We had a big budget. Well, big budget from the UK. It was uh, three million quid. Now, that sounds enormous, amount of money, but it isn't. It's no. not, really. When you... Uh, you would know about the budgets they have for American feature films, and you're know, talking 20 million quid, something like that. But what it, what it gave us was a huge budget for us when we'd been doing nothing but series work. And the way you use that extra money is every scene that you do, you are able to give it more time. If you, you think mentally of Danger our series, they were quite simplistic animation, and the characters walk in, walk out, do a little bit of acting, and gone. When you're working on a feature film, every scene, you can afford to give it separate layers. If you've got the Danger Mouse, say, in a, in a forest, I mean, not Danger Mouse, if you've got the BFG in a forest, you can afford to, I don't know, put things like mist, and special effects in the sky, you can afford for his animation to be subtler. Instead of it being holes in between little bits of movement, you can afford to keep him moving all the time. Full animation. You can afford to give the figures shadows. I mean, there's, there's uh, in, in the history of animation, there is um, uh, a note about when Disney was doing Snow White, his first... Uh, feature film. He he wanted Snow White to have a, a sort of rosy blush on her cheeks. Now, if you were doing serious work, you couldn't afford to think things like that. But what he what he fell back on the girls in his paint and dress department mm-hmm. they applied makeup, little yeah. blusher, to every one of the cheeks on every one of the cells uh, of Snow White. Now, that's in the history of animation. I know this is probably something you, you already knew. But it, it is typical of the sort of thing that I'm thinking about. When you're doing a feature film, you can afford to say, yes, we can cover that. The budget can cover that. We can afford those girls in paint trays to take an extra two or three or six months just putting blusher on the cheeks of those cells. Mm-hmm. It, it's that sort of thing. That's the benefit of, of feature film. You can afford the storyboard to be more searching. You can do scenes that aren't simple, that are more and more difficult. Uh, It was an exciting time.
0: Would you you want to create another feature, if if the opportunity arose for another television feature?
2: Oh, yes, of course. Hmm. Yeah, it would give us the opportunity to gather around ourselves. I'm talking about ourselves, the small group we are at the moment. It would allow us to gather together high-quality drawn animators to build a paint-and-trace department again, to build a special effects department again. I'm talking about the drawn side now. Sure. The same would apply to a f- the feature on the model side, if we did a feature. But that's the sad thing about the old Cosmo Hall. When Thames lost its franchise, that's the reason that we started on the slippery slope down, because... They lost their television franchise. They couldn't go on funding the old Cosgrove Hall. But at the time when that happened, both the model side and the drawn side were ready for feature film material. We were ready to start producing really high quality material for the cinemas. And uh, that was one of the sad things that happened. Uh, The funding just stopped and Cosgrove Hall got other partners like Anglia Television um, came in and then finally at the end it was Granada Television and there was less and less funding along the road hmm. so yes I would love to be in a position where I could say that we would uh, be able to do feature films again but D- that's a long time in the future uh,
0: Well hopefully it's, it's, a, it's a point you'll meet BFG was, it's still remembered all these years later as fondly as anything, you know, more fondly than anything else Released release in the same year. Yeah,
2: it's stayed in people's minds, certainly. um, I think it was an enjoyable
0: film. I do think that. It's one I'm proud of, certainly. Did you work uh, closer with Roldal? He was one of the best
2: sort of authors. He left us totally alone. He, (laughs) at the beginning, when we pitched for the rights, we weren't quite sure because he he had a reputation for being a difficult man. Uh And what I did was, I did a watercolour of how I saw the BFG. And that went to him when we pitched for it. And his books had always been illustrated by Quentin Blake, which were ideal for books. But I wanted the BFG to be more real than that, because I knew the acting he would have to do would need to be more subtle. So our BFG was different from, from Quentin's. And... I sent him this watercolour of how I saw the BFG. He was sitting at his table with a little sofa in front of him. And I got a lovely letter back from Roald Dahl saying he thought it was perfect, and that's how he wanted it to be. And then he left us alone. I think he visited us once. But just to say, really, it was going exactly how he wanted to support it. And then at the end, I gave a screening for him and his family. And I was a little bit concerned about whether, you know, how he would react. And it went right through the whole film. And he was sitting at the back with all his family. Uh, Sophie Dahl was there, I remember. And at the end, he just stood up and started clapping. And his family did. And that was one of the, well, the, one of the best times, you know. He, he, he didn't say anything. he just stood up and started applauding <laughs> there's no
0: better way is there? That's, that's good enough for an
2: author to say that he likes what you've done but <laughs> it, was, it was a good time
0: Excellent, wonderful Well, as a creator of, of much loved children's television series past we'll call it near present, the, the films that are about to be released and hopefully future um, is there a mantra or is there anything you've always stuck to to ensure the success that you've had?
2: that is another tricky one. See, what we're talking about is quality. You're talking about the pursuit of quality. And that is a hard thing to define, isn't it? Mm. People who produce films, all types of films, going back to the early uh, simple shows that the BBC did, they were pursuing quality, and the stuff they produced was, in their mind, quality. We came at it with a slightly different view of what quality is, and what our films were, the, the, the quality we were pursuing, and we put that into our shows. Now time has gone on again, as it has moved on. What you have is, is a slightly different definition of quality now. You've got CGI, you've got Pixar, you've got Disney, you've got, you know, the, the CGI stuff that is being produced now, The quality of that is exceptional, isn't it? You can't ignore it. You have to say, that's the next step. Now, the stuff that we will produce won't be in CGI. It will be in the traditional drawn animation method of production. We will be looking to make our stuff as quality-led as we can. That's the thing that, that we will pursue. But it is a tricky one to define. I can only hope that the thing that we see as is, is quality, the audience uh, uh, accepts it. Does that answer your question? I'm not quite sure it does.
0: It's it's good enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> good. <laughs> quality is key, it would sound. It would, it, it would say, and it, and it sort of fits into the ear and nicely um, and and delivers fond memories, I would say.
2: I mean, I, I don't know where the future's going, but that, that's one of the good things about the future, isn't it? You don't know what it holds for you. You just have to be prepared for it mm. and do the best you can. And I, what I know is that I'm surrounded now by, I've got the hardcore of, of talented people. And that's a good place to be. <laughs> I'm quite, quite happy to be in this place because we all have the same view of what quality is and what good design is. So I'm starting off as a happy man.
0: Excellent. Well, Brian Cosgrove, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today. We really appreciate giving you time up to talk about, you know, past, present and future with us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you.
1: Steve there, talking to Brian Cosgrove, certainly a legend on UK soil with uh, works such as Danger Mouse, Duckula and the BFG, which he went into at length there. Uh, How did you find the BFG as a film? Like, say, measured up against the book? Because that was one of those, like, classic books, wasn't it?
0: Yeah. Well, when I was a kid, uh, the first book I ever read was a Roald Dahl book. It was uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Hmm. So I've always been a fan of of Roald Dahl. But I think I saw the BFG before I read the BFG. Okay. But, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed both the book and and the film. But, obviously, I'm coming from from a different perspective. I presume that you read the book first and then saw the film.
1: I, I remember the film... Vaguely, I—I I must have seen. I can picture it. I can picture scenes, and I can certainly picture the image of the way the characters designed. I mean, I remember being a little precious, perhaps, about books when I was a kid. That I really liked about seeing them as films because you—you you make your own film in your head when you're reading a book, don't you? Mm-hmm. And I would like sometimes they'd be cartoon films. Sometimes I'd like cast, like put my own cast in place, or sometimes I'd just make up my own people or people from real life, and and you'd. I don't know if everyone was like this, but I'd kind of like have cinematography (laughs) playing in my head, you know, based on films I liked. And that would be how I directed my version of the film as I was reading the book. If they make a film of a book, it very rarely looks like the way it looks in your head. And if it's a book you're really invested in, you know, it can be a bit of a letdown. So I I may have not, I know that for years and years and years, I I made a point of not watching uh, James and the Giant Peach when it came out. I would have been about 12, but when I was like younger, that was like my favorite book. And even though I loved Nightmare Before Christmas and I loved Henry Selick's work on that, you know, logically it would have been the perfect movie, but I just kind of didn't want to have my version of that story. I don't know. Corrupted is a bit too dramatic a word, but do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. You've got this this picture, this, this perfect picture in your mind and somebody else is trying to, to recreate that and, and they don't quite get it right because it's not in your mind. The bastards!
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> the biggest problem for me was the sound. I always had different voices in my head.
1: Mm, yeah. And especially like really sort of old classic stuff or... Um- things that were were meant to, you know, have one format, and that's as a novel or as a a comic or whatever, something that is a sort of visual medium. One of the sort of most often discussed, like, what-ifs of animation, and I know you're not a a, a huge fan of of Calvin and Hobbes, but the big gripe a lot of people have is that they never developed that into an animated series. The reason I think... The thing is, like, it would be a completely unsatisfactory production to translate that into an animated TV show. Less so was something like Garfield or, you know, Dilbert or or a lot of those sort of syndicated comic strips, they had their very sort of like set up punchline function. And Calvin and Hobbes was it was satire and philosophy and and really very, very poignant insight into this kid's sort of Psychological relationship with his imaginary friend if that's how you chose to interpret it his relationship with his parents the girl down the street and Everything really sort of it was so much more layered and so much more thoughtful than the average comic that to make that into an episodic TV series would have not worked at all and like you brought up to have voices attached to those characters because I guarantee everyone had a voice for Hobbes and a voice for Calvin that would be impossible to match in real life, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm sure it would have just annoyed a lot of people (laughs) if they had, you know, developed that into something. And and thank God the guy... I mean, that guy, like, clung on to his intellectual property rights like they were his, you know, birthright. They didn't even make a Hobbes doll, apparently, which would have made him a gajillionaire on top of everything else. Sure. And Roald Dahl, I mean, Roald Dahl certainly had a lot of his stuff adapted and i would say his place in the world of like literature and with someone like quentin blake on board illustration i think a lot of people associate the illustration work very heavily with the stories themselves so i would assume that he is a, a, at the very least if not more so a beloved uh, uh, part of the world of, of children's storytelling
0: i think it was nice to hear from uh, brian cosgrove there that uh, Mr. Dahl actually applauded uh, his efforts because apparently he was quite a, a notoriously hard man to please when it came to his own work in uh, film form.
1: Well, that's always good to hear, you know, and I think that uh, uh, if you get the stamp of approval from the guy himself, what more do you kind of need?
0: Yeah, and especially having been left to, to go through design and, and, and animation and, and the, the other processes, you know, picking the voice artists and everything, without his own input, It's like they were both working on the same track. It's nice.
1: Well, good stuff. Good to hear from Brian Cosgrove. I'm looking forward to seeing what Cosgrove Hall Fitzpatrick is it now? That's right. What they come up with in the future. And I'm glad that they're essentially back. They're cracking on with it. And as you coerced him into doing so, bringing the stop motion division into gear.
0: Yeah. So when uh, the stop motion industry in the UK has another boom and becomes uh, just as huge, you know which podcast to thank. So what else
1: has gone on? Little bits and pieces here and there. Uh on the Sheep movie, Adobe Creative Cloud freaking everyone out. Kind of sad news, well, very sad news, because he was a, a, a big, big force in the old uh, uh, stop-motion world, and really in, in films was uh, Ray Harryhausen, who uh, passed quite recently since the last podcast. Lived to fairly uh ripe old age but still it's always sad when they go yeah
0: 92 years
1: old yeah everyone i think even if they don't necessarily realize it probably has a ray harryhausen memory when you think of like the old timiness of movie magic and all the images that conjures up thrown in the mix would definitely be a lot of what he had done you know back in the day oh yeah jason and the argonauts sinbad clash of the titans Most people who work in stop-motion now or have risen to any sort of prominence in stop-motion would cite him as as not so much an influence, but as a, a pioneer and someone who really kind of allowed the progress of the medium to happen by, you know, taking animation, you know, as a concept, really imbuing the inanimate with life. And, more to the point, scaring the piss out of people. And that's what I like about the guy.
0: Uh, It's really easy to call somebody a pioneer. Ben, you're a pioneer. See, it's as easy as that. Mm -hmm. But um, when it comes to people like uh, Ray Harryhausen, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that his influence on animation parallels Walt Disney's. Walt Disney made 2D animation, or he was part of a group of people that made 2D animation, uh, or the idea of 2D animation, what it is today when people think of 2d animation they probably think of Disney first and they probably think that 2d animation is for children that's mainly because of the influence of Walt Disney when people think about stop-motion they may not necessarily think about Ray Harryhausen or when they think about special effects they may not necessarily think about Ray Harryhausen but in the same way that they would not really be this industry for 2d animation if it wasn't for Disney there wouldn't be this industry for visual effects and stop motion in quite the way that it is if it wasn't for Ray Harryhausen. He's the man who took the legacy uh, of Willis O'Brien, you know, King Kong, uh, The Lost World, this this camera trick using puppets into something that set off the imagination of of Steven Spielberg, James Cameron, George Lucas. He really sort of fired those cylinders off with his, you know, fascinating creatures.
1: Do you have any favourite creatures?
0: Uh, I remember the first time I saw Clash of the Titans. Uh, I think it was Christmas time or New Year's Eve, some some point. Uh, I was very young, and when Medusa turned up on screen, it must have been one of the most terrifying experiences, film viewing experiences as a as a child I've, I've I've been through. You know, the, the menace and the, uh, the idea that, you know, if she looked at you, you'd turn into stone. The skeletons as well, obviously, people uh, always, always quote the skeletons from Sinbad and from Jason and the Argonauts. You know, there was, he, he used the skeletons a couple of times. Yeah. There's too many to name. I mean, if you remember the second podcast we did, uh, Barry Purvis kind of schooled me with the creatures from First Men in the Moon. Oh, Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, he put uh, you on the spot a bit, if I recall.
0: Blimey, yeah, completely on the spot.
1: Educating you. Yeah, yeah, too right. And, and who better to get an education in the history of stop motion from? Did you subsequently see that film?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it just goes to show that, you know, there was a lot more to the man then. Jason and the Argonauts, Clash of the Titans, One Million Years B.C. You know, there was a whole host of other f- films and, and, and projects That he was a part of, just yeah, I I, you know really don't know where to where to continue talking about how great the man was because you know it's I think it's I think it's obvious that
1: the the sequence that I I found particularly uh, I didn't see it until I was in my twenties and it was at I think something that Barry Purvis may have presented he was showing some examples of influential stop motion it was a scene from Jason and the Argonauts where they're um, being pursued by this giant bronze statue. And that's a much simpler idea, and a lot less complex visually than the, you know, the, all the skeletons and stuff. But just the way it was it, it was effectively put together for the time that it was this giant thing that was gonna squish the <laughs> out of you if you didn't act now. And there was something very, in its simplicity, something very nightmarish about it. I pr- it probably wouldn't have scared me as a kid but it sort of got under my skin a bit as an adult. And I think in in part, it's also to do with um, uh, what I, if I remember right, Robert Morgan very aptly uh, referred to as this uncanny uh, nature of stop motion and how it can be quite chilling visually. As fluid as the movement can be, it's never quite real life. Something that lends itself really well to like zombies and skeletons and, and, bloodthirsty statues because they've been reanimated and they're kind of, you know, not quite normal. I find that, like, old horror movies that would use stop-motion effects tend to kind of... They look dated, but they they tend to, to still have that kind of, like, ooh, that's kind of creepy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Whereas I think the stuff that they make now with, like, CG... I don't know. It just, it's, it's for the same reason that a lot of, like, CG animation... For kids that would have been warm with puppets or with stop motion puppets come off as a little cold and a little sterile it's a lot more realistic with cG but there's always going to be that charm with stop motion and um he'll be missed he is clearly very missed it, it's you know it caused quite the ripple some sadness in the the animation community you know from people who knew him directly or people who just looked up to him
0: these uh, there's a few people being in touch with us to offer their favorite Ray Harryhausen moments On Twitter We had a message from Craig Barr At the underscore mudroom And he says that the skeletons From Jason and the Argonauts Are obviously his favourite uh, Ray Harryhausen creation We got a few nice tweets from, from Max At Maxwell Genie, who, who echoes your sentiment about, uh, about Talos Possibly my favourite creation was Ray's Talos the performance he gave was nothing short of brilliant—a true work of genius. I remember flinching in shock as a kid to this scene, the moment he begins to slowly turn his head. I also remember strangely feeling sad as he died—a great performance there too. Uh, and then he's, he's obviously given his links there to um, to the to Talos, uh, that scene from Jason and the Argonauts.
1: Tim Allen on Facebook simply. He was 92, and what an amazingly long life full of achievements, memories, and deservedly celebrated by all of us his peers. Malcolm Hadley, at Malk underscore Hadley, remembers Ray's set visit on Corpse Bride. Very humble, but bemused by how many crew it took to produce an animated film. Animators trembled with awe. It's going to freak you out a bit if you're working on a stop-motion film and one of the biggest legends of <laughs> the medium that you're working in strolls in the room
0: yeah <laughs> nothing like pressure uh we got a, a message from somebody else who has actually uh worked with ray this is from wes wood wes runs the animation toolkit.com they put together a a piece of kit with ray harryhausen uh, last year Ray was a joy to meet and a gentleman to talk to uh, and offered so many valuable comments on stop-motion and filmmaking. Of my time spent with him while we were developing the kit, the one thing he said to me that will remain with me is this, filmmaking is about solving problems and there is no one answer to anything. You need to be incredibly creative and resourceful with the tools you have. Learn the basics and understand the human form and the rest will come from experience and your ability to apply your mind to each situation you encounter. For a moment I felt like I was sat in his workshop, like a grandfather passing wisdom to his grandson. The words, apply your mind, will ring in my ears forever and ever. Wes Wood there giving his memory of working with Ray Harryhausen on the Armour Creature.
1: So this thing is, is a pretty impressive piece of kit. And you know, it's with Ray Harryhausen's stamp. And I think for, you know, a lot of stop-motion people out there who would be influenced by him, I think they'd probably find it very useful. Uh, Wes has very kindly donated one of these Armature kits to us, and we're going to give it away to one of our Squiggly podcast listeners. There's information on the podcast page, and uh, also check out the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash squigglymagazine, and there will be a picture on there to uh, share amongst your uh, your Facebook friends. If you like and share, you'll be in with a chance to get your hands on this very nifty looking armor creature. We have a nice email from Michael Farm, a big Harryhausen fan who I think was particularly uh, affected by his passing, he writes, I remember watching King Kong and the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms when I was only five. They both played such a big role in my childhood play with plasticine and Lego. That to then attend college and discover the man who made all the creatures in the films I grew up with was still alive helped me guide my creative ambition towards stop motion animation. His work inspired me to follow my passion for dinosaurs, aliens and creatures through university and only last year did this reach its climax when I won the opportunity to meet Ray at his home in London after winning the Ray Harryhausen Storyboard Contest. To hear him say how interested he was in wanting to see the finished animation, watching him play with the puppet I'd made for the project, and seeing his eyes glow with passion and excitement when we discussed stop motion, of both his own work, like the Hatching Ymir in 20 Million Miles to Earth, and other people's, like his early accounts with Willis O'Brien, I can now truly say I've been blessed by a god. On the day I discovered Ray had passed away, I felt like I'd lost a close relative. I will miss Ray terribly. But his inspiration will live on with me and countless others, old and young, and I hope that I'll be able to follow a similar path to what Ray did all them years ago. Lovely stuff. Thank you very much for that, Michael. So Ray Harryhausen, he will not be forgotten anytime soon, that's for sure. It, uh, it's a legacy that will definitely live on, as uh, vaguely hackers as that expression is, I think he's one of the few people that it genuinely applies to. <laughs> One of the, shall we say, darlings of the festival circuit at the moment that's been winning the awards hither and thither. And we've talked about it before. It's a great film. It's called Oh Willie. And this is a stop motion film. It's very fuzzy. It's a, it's a nice little uh, aesthetic, especially considering the subject matter. It's about a bunch of fuzzy uh, naturists.
0: Fuzzy as in, as we just described, made of felt.
1: Yes. Really, I think everyone has been digging this film. It's been, you know, taking the circuit by storm. Recently won the Grand Prix at uh, Stuttgart. I believe it also won the main animation prize at Encounters. I think it's won a bunch of main animation prizes pretty much everywhere. Oddly kind of snubbed by the Oscars. I think everyone kind of expected, given how well it performed, that it would at least make it onto the long list, you know? Mm -hmm. but a very sweet film nonetheless very funny gets very twisted toward the end which is what i kind of like i like anything that makes me feel vaguely uncomfortable and ill at ease with myself
0: one of the best parts about the film is the the dark humor in it there's certain gags that that pop up that i found (laughs) hilarious Or, or pop out Pop out, so, yes, indeed, yes, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, let's not spoil it for everyone, but yes, <laughs> those that will have seen this marvelous film obviously know that what, what we're talking about. The material used is a kind of felt, so the lighting it just gives it that extra sort of sublime quality. Hmm. There's a sort of boil on the fabric as well as it's been animated, which uh, gives it that quality that it's only available really in stop motion,
1: and not even in stop motion nowadays. The way that they're making a lot of these films. They make the puppets so clean, they make them so kind of like, you know, that regimented process of how they put together the puppets and Paranorman. But all the little kind of, like, tells and, and sort of the minutiae, I guess, of how the characters move, as you would see in something like, say, The Nightmare Before Christmas. It's all been sort of ironed out nowadays. Caroline was another one, and uh, this one I felt, you know, was, was more in the, the vein of, like, I guess Fantastic Mr. Fox. Didn't that have, like, more sort of textural
0: yeah, you're right. materials?
1: Yeah. You really got, like, the vibe of how they were being moved and manipulated from the animation in that respect.
0: But you still could get lost in the story. It wasn't like it was, oh, this is obviously an animation. I mean, what stop motion does so well is it invites you in to witness the act of, of motion in animation, but still you're engrossed by a, a, a you know a marvellous story.
1: I guess it's sort of the equivalent of, like, seeing a little bit of fingerprint on like Gromit's forehead you know yeah. for a split second it doesn't take you out of it like it doesn't like oh well the fourth wall is completely f- forever i'm i'm out of this film <laughs> yeah. uh it's it's like it, no it just gives you a little glimpse into the process and it's it's uh,
0: i don't think it would work in 2D if you saw the coffee rims all over the cells <laughs>
1: <laughs> but you you see like grit on cells and and little bits of like you know where where cells aren't painted properly every once in a while I was finding like you know you're watching old Simpsons yeah. back from like the 90s and like they'll be walking around and then like for one frame you'll be able to see the sky through their eyeballs because someone didn't paint <laughs> white on the back of the cell yeah um, that one of my favorite moments in The Simpsons it's this it's just it's one shot and it's just of them laughing in the car. They're singing along to Gilbert and Sullivan and very randomly it cuts to them laughing and it's just like three or four frames of recycled laugh animation (laughs) that is so badly drawn and like so much nil attention has been paid to like which characters in the foreground and which characters in the background like they overlap each other the wrong because I I love this scene so much like I've actually gone through it (laughs) frame (laughs) by frame you don't notice it really in the moment back in those days where everything was still on the acetate cells and stuff you know it, it was nice to see those little tells here and there
0: what's what's incredibly telling about how sad i am is i know exactly the exact episode you're talking about it's cape fear i right i don't
1: think you should feel bad about that it's one of the best episodes they did
0: yeah kelsey grammar is best yeah
1: yes yes have you ever seen that show boss no it's a show where he plays this corrupt politician and i just can't take him seriously because whenever he gets angry, he's Sideshow boff <laughs> <laughs> He has two settings, he's Frasier when he's calm and he's Sideshow Boff when he's pissed off. Yeah. Meanwhile, speaking of fuzzy ginger things, oh, Willie, um, <laughs> back back yes. to that. Uh, one of our squiggly correspondents uh, uh, and new face, I guess, to the online magazine, Laura Beth Kelly, who's been writing for us, went over to Stuttgart, one of the best animation festivals in my estimation, uh, had a rollicking good time, I, I gather, and got to interview some people. One of them was Mark Rolls, who is the co-director of *Owilly*. He co-directed it with Emma Swife.
0: So, Emma Swife is from Belgium, and uh, Mark Rolls is originally from South Africa. So, a truly international couple uh, putting together this wonderful film.
1: So, let's hear from one half of that team, Mark Rolls, talking to Laura Beth at this year's ITFS Stuttgart.
3: Can you tell us a little bit about how you came up with the idea for a Willy?
4: My girlfriend and co-director, Emma de Swaff, she has a background in documentary. So the initial idea came from a graduation film that she did, uh, in which we were following an office worker named Willie. He turned out to be quite a tragic figure. We were just kind of trying to do a documentary about the average kind of bureaucrat in Belgium and uh, we came across this guy who he seemed very interesting, uh, a very kind of passive, gentle character who uh, went through a lot of tragedy and that, and during the making of the documentary he lost his job and it was kind of uh, it had quite an effect on us so his character we kind of we always kind of referred to him when we were writing scripts together um, so that was like the initial kind of um, spark or the initial impetus for the for this character in our film we did a, a, her graduation film together, which was basically sort of a cruder version of the film as it is now, O Willy. And in this graduation film we kind of further developed in his character. So the character came from that, but uh, the rest of the film we kind of pieced together through research that we were doing for other projects. And we just kind of brought that research together and made the film out of it.
3: Can you tell us a little bit about the materials you use? Because obviously felt is something that's really drawn a lot of people to it.
4: Yeah, so the film is made either using felt, wool or textile of some sort. There's no other material. Like the base materials obviously were were kind of like wood or whatever we we found that was useful. But everything is kind of covered in, in textile in one way or another. The idea for using felt came from the fact that Emma's graduation film, which I wasn't a, di- a director and I just did the camera for that. That was because there were a lot of forest sets and uh, using wool in this way, we came up with like a look for the trees in the forest that were, like, worked really well, especially with the lights and that. So we just thought that was a really good look for the, for the, the next film and we kind of thought well. If we used like wool for the trees, what would the people look like? Like if they were in that set. So that's where the idea came from using felt for the characters. And from then, like any other thing, object that we came up with, we, we thought, well, we can't just do it in plasticine or anything. It, we we had to make sure that the style was pretty consistent. So um, uh, we decided just to go with this textile look, but it wasn't something that we kind of preconceived. From the beginning, so.
3: You said there were some problems with it moving and changing due yeah. to like heat, I assume, from lights and cameras.
4: Yeah. So will will is an organic substance, of course, so it, it reacts to temperature. It'll expand and contract a lot more than a synthetic material would. So if we if we were doing a shot on the film, we had to complete it within one day or as quick as possible. Because it would be changing constantly throughout the shots, so every shot had to be done within one day. So that kind of restricted us in terms of the storytelling. We couldn't have these long, elaborate shots. Uh, the, the animation had to be kind of focused and, and quite small. Uh, we had to, like, yeah, we had to pull everything down to a very kind of focused core. So it, it really, the material dictated how the story was told. All our ideas that we had for like these long involved shots, we had to kind of pare down and really sort of bring down to an essence that we could sort of control technically.
3: There was still like an armature and everything underneath, yes. yeah. Was it like, you said you tried to get in contact with McKinnon Saunders and asked them to do it, but they were like, we did,
4: no. We did get into contact with McKinnon Saunders and they were more than happy to help us. They'd just come off of doing Fantastic Mr. Fox, all the puppets for Fantastic Mr. Also Fox. Quite furry. Yeah. And uh, so they had a lot of material uh, lying around. Mm-hmm. So uh, we were there, and we, just, we didn't do all the puppets there. We, we were basically there just to kind of develop sort of a prototype for the puppets that we would be using. So we, we, did, we made two puppets there, and based on those two, we made all the other characters in the film. While we were there we learned a whole lot about like all the things that they tried, they also tried to do a, a film made with, or, or puppets made with felt and that didn't work out so well, they had to abandon it at some point because it was it's a very inflexible material to work with, so uh, puppets don't have a full range of motion so either you kind of scrap the puppets and come up with like a new material to work with or you change your story or you, you change your way of, of telling the story, which is what we did um, but yeah, like, the Ken they were great. I mean, we, uh, we actually, like, got a lot of stuff from, uh, from them, like, materials. So, like, in the film, the, the feet of the characters are actually feet that came off characters in Corpse Bride. Oh, right. The, like, the father, who's like this large character, mm-hmm. he has tiny little feet. Those are actually the feet that we inherited oh. and used in the film. At one point in the film, there's like two little boys. Who, who beat up the main character when he was a kid. Uh, one of them has got like ginger hair mm-hmm. and that was actually hair from Fantastic Mr. Fox. So we gave him like a George Clooney haircut because he has hair from the character who George Clooney voiced. Oh,
3: that's cool. Yeah. Um, how did you get funding for this film?
4: In Europe it's a different system to, I think, the rest of the world. So half our funding came from Belgium And they have a very good sort of uh, like grant system in place for films, like independent films. And then the other half came from France, who also have an excellent grant system for films. They they subsidize films all the time. Yeah, yeah. So on the one hand, that was really good because they kind of sort of believed in us and they knew they. I mean, commercially, the film wasn't going to be like a big shaker, but. It's more of a cultural thing, so they saw the importance in that. And uh, yeah, they decided to, to give us a grant, so it was good. Which is like how a lot of, especially independent animated films, get made in Europe. A lot of crow producing. So Holland was also produced part of the film. For the film production itself, that meant like traveling around a lot. So the pre production was all done in France, so we had to like, move the entire production over there. The sets were constructed in France, and then uh, we hired a big truck and we shipped everything over to Belgium for the shoot. Shot everything there, and then when the film was done and edited, everything had to go to, to Holland to do all the sound work and all that. So it's a pan European effort. I don't know, we don't really think too much, too deeply on that, but, uh, yeah, I mean, Emma and I have very similar tastes, obviously, and we just kind of did things that we thought were funny or were interesting in some way. But the fact that it's dark, I don't know, Belgium does have this tradition of of sort of surrealist art, so obviously we're informed by that, but we're informed by everything, I mean, uh, the first part of the film we got from Diane Arbus's photo series of um, nudists in, in the States in the 50s, which is also kind of humorous, but also kind of, there's sort of like this darker edge to it, this, the photos look kind of weird, so we were really drawn to that. And then uh, during our talk today, someone was mentioning, oh, you got stuff from Tintin, like uh, there's, there's one Tintin book where he gets... Like Abducted by like a huge yeti, and that also kind of informed where the story went, but it wasn't nothing was really conscious. it was also kind of drawing on stuff that we 've kind of admired, sort of, sort, of, sort of piecing it together like that, so there wasn 't really like a set thing that we like a set trajectory for the story. There was a lot of piecing together of stuff that we found interesting.
3: Yesterday was the first time I'd seen the film,
4: so... Okay. Was,
3: how
4: have you felt, for, like you said this morning, that you had quite a lot of different audience
3: reactions. I yeah, yeah. I also found it kind
4: of strange being and nudist
3: and not really being a massive thing over there. There is a nudist colony in, in England. Oh, I know there
4: is. I know a few people that do things, There's one called Sandy Balls. <laughs> oh,
3: yeah, I think I know
4: it, actually. Yeah, it was, it was a meme on internet. Sandy <laughs> <laughs> but, um. Was it a nudist
3: colony? I hope so.
4: If it's not, it should be. Yeah, audience reactions, it really depends. I was expecting like a, a less vocal reaction in Germany, but it was like, I was, I was blown away by the audience reaction. Yeah, they reacted really well. It's been different all over and we, we've just finished our festival run in the States where I mean, Americans are very sort of inquisitive, and there there were a lot of questions and a lot of confusion. But we won quite a few prizes there, so there was like this sort of a weird tension there, like people who were like really not getting it, but then talking to them they actually did get it, they just maybe weren't used to a film like that. In France, everyone was very nonplussed, there was like not much reaction in France, strangely, enough. I don't know. I can't put my finger on it. I don't know why one audience reacts one way, and another audience reacts the other way. We're just kind of pleased if it's positive, so. been doing
3: very well, around the world. Yeah, it's
4: been doing surprisingly well. The film kind of snowballed. Like, the beginning, the first couple of festivals, it wasn't doing anything. It didn't get selected for a few. So we were kind of like, oh well, on to the next one. But then at one point, it just kind of like, caught on and sort of snowballed from there. But we don't think like it's anything. T- I mean, we've seen other films that we thought are just as good, and but some sometimes one film kind of catches on and has a life of its own, and we're, we're happy that it was ours. So yeah. you mentioned that Willie comes
3: sort of from a character in a documentary, yeah. from Emma's career and career. Um, are there any characters you feel particularly relatable
4: to? Or? In this film, it's very much on the main character Willie. Mm-hmm. All the other characters are very much kind of like, sort of all there just to kind of give that character like a trajectory to progress the narrative. Maybe the, 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 the character of the Yeti was just this very violent, unpredictable character that we wanted in there which is kind of anarchic. I mean if you go to most film schools or most film scenario seminars will tell you your character has to be proactive, has to make decisions, has to go from there to there but we wanted a character that was very passive he didn't want to do anything he just wanted to be left alone but was forced into situations so it wasn't it was never like the character does this but then decides to do that and then decides to do that it was always like the characters are here but then something happens and the character is always reacting so willie's always reacting to whatever he gets put up against but in, in a very kind of passive sort of way. So we decided we're gonna just throw the works at him, <laughs> and at the end just being put together with this sort of violent, unpredictable sort of beast, and how he would react to that, mm. which is something we found like, kind of interesting for the film, so we just, yeah, did it, so, yeah. So what are you
3: working on now?
4: The next film will be uh, also a short film made in, using much the same technique, mm-hmm. It's going to be set in colonial Africa, so between, like, Africa between 1890-19, before the First World War, so like 1910. Like basically the scramble for Africa where European countries were just kind of like going into Africa and just sort of picking countries for themselves. We thought that was like an interesting subject matter. It's, it's, It's a very absurd part of European history that's kind of been dealt with very seriously in the past, like historically it's like oh they, they did this and they did that but if you look at it from an animator's point of view it's like extremely absurd, it's sort of like almost cartoonesque kind of megalomaniac like grapple for power, so we thought we could do something with that narratively, but we're still like very much developing it, uh, we've just gotten like a first portion of funding for that so it's not going to be out anytime soon hopefully next year end of next year sometime but who knows
0: so that was laura beth cowley talking to mark rolls the co-director along with emma Desweff of the fuzzy festival favorite O willie part of the stuttgart uh, lineup this year
1: so shortly after that interview it uh, went on to win the grand prix at stuttgart and i believe has still been performing very very well Across the globe, as well it should. It's a a wonderful piece of work. Check it out, yo, if y'all haven't already. OMG, we've reached the end of another squiggly podcast. They go by so quick, Stephen. They go by so quick. Too quick. Well, thank you, as always, to everyone who helped us out. Thanks to Brian Cosgrove. Again, two podcasts we got out of the man also co-director of Oh Mark James Rolls. And thanks to Laura Beth for interviewing him amidst all the Stuttgart shenanigans. Don't forget to check out our Facebook and our Armor Creature giveaway. Fantastic bit of Ray Harryhausen endorsed slash developed stop motion kit. Check us out at facebook.com forward slash magazine. Also, we're on the Twitter, at squiggly. And keep your eyes peeled. If you're going to Annecy this year, we'll be there. Frolicking in the Annecy fields Whatever they have over there, lakes (laughs)
0: We'll be frolicking in the lake
1: (laughs) Frolicking with abandon down Annecy Way So come say hello
0: The Squiggly podcast is presented by myself, Steve Henderson You can follow me on Twitter At Mr. _S S. Henderson It's also presented by Mr. Ben Mitchell You can follow him on Twitter At Ben L. Mitchell The Squiggly podcast is edited and produced by Ben Mitchell. Music by Wesley Allard and Ben Mitchell.
1: And for all the usual news, reviews, features and interviews, visit us at squiggly.co.uk. Now with a brand spanking new look. It's very pretty because frankly, we're worth it. And you are too.
0: So until the next Squiggly podcast, see you later. Bye.